Well, hello and welcome to another episode of Help Me Believe, the show about Christian apologetics and theology. My name is Hayden Clark, your host, and I'm excited to introduce to you my special guest. His name is Dr. Craig Blumberg. Dr. Blumberg, how are you doing today, sir? Well, just waking up, but other than that, I'm doing very well. Thank you. Well, thank you. I appreciate you taking the time out of your morning uh, to do the interview, and so I'm sure you got a, a busy schedule, and I appreciate that. It's 1 a.m. here in Texas for the listeners, and uh, let's see, 7 a.m. in the U.K., is that correct? That's right. Yeah, so to the uh, podcast listeners, don't say that uh, I'm not dedicated to this. I'm up at 1 a.m., but uh, it's, a, it's a lot of fun, and uh, I, again, I really appreciate uh, you taking the time out of your day to do this, Dr. Blumberg. Uh, but for the audience who may or may not be uh, familiar who, uh, with who you are, I thought it might be helpful to uh, give an introduction. I teach New Testament studies at Denver Seminary. I'm in a rut. I've been there for 33 years. Uh, Hayden mentioned Cambridge, or at least England, which is where I am on sabbatical. But uh, I'll be back in Denver in January. Um, originally from western Illinois, uh, Mississippi River Town. Uh, grew up uh, in what uh, I later learned was uh, a fairly liberal uh, Christian church, um, and although I was confirmed in it, I really can't say that I came to know Jesus um, in a personal way until I was in high school uh, through the help of a Campus Life Youth for Christ club that my best friend invited me to, and uh, then I was nurtured and challenged uh, in uh, college years uh, by Campus Crusade for Christ, uh, but also by going to uh, a liberal arts college uh, out of the same religious tradition that I was raised in that had a very different approach to religious studies, um, very critical of much that was in the Bible, um, and uh, probably fair to say that most of my professors believed uh, that only a small fraction of the biblical narratives represented what actually happened in history. And I came to learn that this reflected a, a seismic shift in the field of religious studies in the 1960s. Uh, and since I went to college in the 1970s, we were fresh off of that change. And uh, although I set out to be a high school math teacher and I had an illustrious one-year career doing that, um, I quickly realized that what I thought the Lord was leading me to do was, uh, in fact, accurate. And I resigned and went to seminary, found a wife. That wasn't the plan, but it happened along the way. Um, <laughs> And in a pre-internet world, three weeks after we were married, we moved to the far corners of uh, Northeast Scotland uh, for PhD work. Um, and if we weren't already each other's best friends, we quickly had to become that because we had no others. And uh, even uh, long-distance phone calls weren't cheap as they often are today. Yeah. So uh, um, we had wonderful, rich three years there, and then. Uh, uh, was blessed to get an opportunity to teach at uh, a young college in South Florida called Palm Beach Atlantic, then college. Today it's a university. Um, after that, uh, had a year here in Cambridge at a residential research library called the Tyndale House. 
which we've come back to several times over the years. And uh, from there, in the fall of 1986, came to Denver Seminary, where uh, I haven't really just stayed put. We've been blessed to be able to travel the world uh, and minister in a lot of places, but keep coming back to Denver. It's a nice place to live. Well, very good. Thank you uh, for sharing that with us. Um, uh, what an what an awesome story. Thanks for sharing. Uh, talking about New Testament studies and, and um, the historical reliability of the New Testament, which is uh, the title of a book that you've written, um, which is an excellent book, by the way. Thank you so much for writing it. I've got it as well. I've uh, recently been reading uh, Richard Bauckham's Jesus and the Eyewitnesses, and now I'm now I'm moving into this book. I've read this book, uh, that is your book, uh, The Historical Reliability of the New Testament, before, but I'm uh, moving back into it. But it seems to me that there seems to be two uh, major areas of discussion here. That's the textual uh, reliability of the New Testament, and then the historical reliability of the New Testament. I think I think that's at least a useful way that I think about it, at, at least. Um, so ta- talking about this textual reliability of the New Testament, um, something that gets brought up all the time is the New Testament variants. Of course, uh, you hear this from the famous Bart Ehrman all the time, who, who uh, makes a, a big deal of the different variants in the manuscript history. But um, why don't I just kind of open that up to you? Uh, what, um, how many variants are there? What is a variant? And what should we make of them? <laughs> Well, um, yes, uh, great question, and you're right to uh, to separate those two questions because a lot of people um, get them confused. Um, I hear people say, "Well, there's there's so many manuscripts that uh, uh, testify to uh, the contents of the New Testament that it must be true." Um, well, no, that just means we know what the writers said. Um, you have to ask other questions to find out whether it's true or not. Uh, but uh, as uh, Ehrman and more conservative scholars would tell you, <clears throat> nobody's ever uh, made a complete uh, count of all the variants uh, because it numbers in the hundreds of thousands. But uh, you have to realize that there also are um, in five digits uh, manuscripts uh, Somewhere, even even here, you see varying numbers, but uh, let's just say ballpark to the nearest thousand, maybe 4,000 uh, manuscripts uh, in Greek, and then uh, another uh, possibly up to 20,000 in ancient languages. Uh, and this covers the entire period of time up to the inventing of the printing press. <clears throat> so the vast... <clears throat> excuse me, the vast majority of these are uh, um, perhaps a thousand years later than uh, the oldest copies we have. Um, but the important question to ask is not how many they are, but what are they like? Mm-hmm. And the vast majority of the differences uh, among manuscripts are extremely minor. Uh, spelling differences, uh, the appearance of a, a small word like an article, a the, or an a, or an an, or a connecting word, or word order of minor words, uh, none of which change the, the meaning in any significant way at all. Um, if someone uh, uses footnotes, uh, whether uh, online or uh, in a hard copy of a contemporary English translation of a Bible, 
you can see the three or four or five hundred of the most significant ones in just about any modern English translation and decide for yourself how significant they are. But uh, uh, it's not the number that's the issue. It's uh, what kind of differences do we find? Mm-hmm. So I, I think that uh, Ehrman and, and most uh, critical scholars would agree that the uh, types of variants don't, say, affect any core Christian doctrine or anything like that. Right. Uh, but you but you do sometimes hear, um, picking on Ehrman here, but he is kind of the most uh, famous in this area, but uh, you do sometimes hear Ehrman say things like, it will affect the entire meaning of a book. And I think he usually uses Hebrews chapter 2 as an illustration. Um, but what are some of the the biggest or some of the most difficult variants, um, at least in your opinion? Um, well, the two most famous uh, for people who have, have never heard about this topic at all before, um, uh, the, the ones that uh, are sometimes surprising are the, uh, and, and interestingly, they're each uh, 12 verses long as we've come to use verses to number the, the Bible. Um, one is the so-called longer ending of Mark. Uh, it's come to be known as Mark 16, 9 to 20. Um, and the other is the account of Jesus with a woman caught in adultery in uh, John seven fifty three to 8, 11, uh, which also happens to be 12 verses. Um, after that, you don't have any that affect even more than uh, two verses, and most of them only one, and most of them not even uh, a full verse. Right. Uh, so, um, uh, in his best moments, uh, Ehrman will acknowledge what you said and will acknowledge that uh, not even uh, the meaning of a book or a uh, significant large section of a book is is affected, um, but if you want to follow up on those those two, we can. Well, okay. So, um, what does that do for inerrancy or, or Christian theology to say that there are um, sections in the in the New Testament things that have made it into the New Testament at least traditionally? that uh, seem to not belong there. Right. Um, so whenever a Christian, um, completely unfamiliar with New Testament studies, especially with uh, the textual studies and things like that, when they hear that, it's, it sounds pretty alarming. Uh, mm-hmm. it's, it's the cause of much doubt and things like that. So uh, what should we make of this situation? Well, um, we need to understand that uh, in... The history of the church using the language of the inspiration or infallibility or inerrancy uh, of scripture uh, that that language has always been attached to uh, what are called the original autographs and i'm not talking about uh, a famous athlete's signature here <laughs> but uh, um, the the documents that were first written um, we're not talking about uh, an inerrant process of preservation that would be a, a spectacular miracle that would have to be repeated every day as every person around the world ever tried to copy uh, a phrase or something uh, from the Bible. Um, and so uh, um, we're talking about uh, how the original biblical writers first wrote the books 
that uh, we treat as distinctive and canonical. Now, the follow-up question then becomes how do we know that uh, they were carefully preserved, if there are all these hundreds of thousands of variants, and the answer is precisely because we have so many manuscripts. Uh, we see how the vast majority uh, of the text uh, is close enough, no matter what manuscript you may be following, that the reconstructions of the Greek New Testament, Hebrew and Aramaic Old Testament, that scholars and even Bible college seminary students uh, utilize uh, reflect with a high degree of probability uh, what those original writings were. Um, but we can't say it's 100%. That would be to simply be disingenuous. Right. Yeah, so we, you're talking about reconstructing the New Testament text and the fact that we do not have the autographs. Um, I've heard at least some skeptics, and, and not on the scholarly level, the academic level. I'm on a lay level here and usually tend to have conversations with skeptics that are on the same level. But I've heard some skeptics say you know, something to the effect like, uh, you don't, you don't know what the original said, so you can't say that you that we can re recreate or reconstruct it. So maybe, how does that work, and ha how can you how can we still say there's a high degree of, of, uh, of probability that we've got the original text, even though we don't have the autographs? Well, let's use an analogy. Um, let's say I have a, a class, um, thirty students, and. Um, I, I give an assignment and I, I say, um, I would like uh, a guy hypothetically named Hayden to write a paper um, and uh, um, describe, um, pick your favorite topic, uh, the uh, habits of uh, kangaroos at night when nobody's watching them in Australia. And uh, you write an amazing paper on this, and uh, I say, now, um, I also know that a whole lot of you uh, have never properly learned to type. I've watched you when you use your keyboards, and uh, some of you are doing this one finger in each hand method, and some of you have learned to do it really fast, but I'm going to teach you all to type, and I'm going to give you the exercise of copying Hayden's paper. Um, so after a little bit of experience with uh, learning to type, everybody submits to me uh, a copy of Hayden's paper copied. And suddenly your paper is burned in a tragic fire um, and uh, I want to reconstruct what you originally said. And I start to look at everybody's copies and by golly, some of them have a word where others don't. But I can see that 28 of them have this word and two don't, and there's a pretty good chance I know it was originally there, mm -hmm. or vice versa. Or I see that uh, somebody accidentally skipped an entire line of text, but that was the only person in the class who did. And I'm going to be able to, with a high degree of accuracy, reconstruct what you originally wrote uh, simply by seeing what the majority say uh, who copied you 
and um, recognizing the kinds of mistakes that people make when when they copy another manuscript. Yeah. Well, I, um, I'm happy to say that at least most of the skeptics that I know or engage with are happy to concede this point of textual reliability. Um, even Ehrman, when when pushed on this, will be forced to say that it does. The variants don't amount to much, if anything at all, really. Uh, if anything, it's really a strength of the of the text because of the number of manuscripts. Um, so it's usually something that can be turned on its head. But as we have have, have both uh, spoken to. Uh, so far, there's a difference between the textual reliability and the historical reliability. So right. it's one it's one thing to say these were the original claims versus these claims are actually true. Um, so uh, let's start kind of more broadly, if that's helpful, and then we can zoom in as we go where we where, where wherever we feel like. So how would you go about making an argument for the general reliability of the Gospels? You have to do what. Uh uh, classical historians would do for any other manuscript from the ancient Mediterranean world. You have to ask a, a whole barrage of questions. Mm -hmm. Do we have any idea uh, who wrote the document? Uh, do we know when it was written? How close to the events? Uh, did uh, the writer, uh, do we know or can we infer that they had access to uh, uh, eyewitness testimony, or were they eyewitnesses themselves? Uh, if from a later period of time, did they use uh, previously written sources, or uh, because the ancient world was an oral culture, um, did they have access to a faithfully transmitted oral tradition of some kind? And then we also have to look at the, the nature of the contents. Um, is everything simply skewed in one direction to promote a certain ideology or does it contain um, things that cut against the grain of what the uh, author is obviously interested in trying to say? Uh, are there um, admissions uh, of the uh, fallibility of the main characters or the protagonists of the story. Um, if I use a literary critical term, um, are there round rather than just flat characters? That is to say, do we, do we see people portrayed in the um, complex realities that we know all human beings have? Mm -hmm. Or is it just uh, uh, like... Uh, some superhero, uh, although even today, um, I tell you, Batman has evolved in a generation. When <laughs> I was a kid watching the original half-hour Batman shows, he never did anything wrong. Yeah. And now we have whole movies about the dark side of Batman. Yeah. He's a very dark character today. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> That's funny. Um, well, maybe we can talk about one or two of those things. Let's talk about the authorship of the Gospels. So um, another um, popular thing to say is that they were originally anonymous, um, something to that effect. So how, um, what, what, what do you have to say about the authorship of the, uh, the Gospels? Well, it is important to acknowledge that um, unlike uh, most of the letters of the New Testament, 
the Gospels do not begin in the text themselves, nor at any other point, and actually make a specific claim. Uh, I, Matthew, am writing this uh, the way Paul will consistently begin his letters and say, Paul and Timothy to the church in such and such a place, greetings and so on. Um, on the other hand, those copies that we have that include the very beginning of a gospel and beginnings and endings uh, were the most uh, vulnerable to being torn when you rolled something up in a scroll. Uh, and so there are lots of, of manuscripts that don't have the very beginnings, but where we have them, uh, there is always a title, uh, the gospel according to Matthew, Mark, Luke, or John. So to say that the very original ones had no claim of authorship even in a title is simply a guess that we don't actually know. Mm -hmm. um, the question then becomes, if I wanted to invent the name of a famous, respectable early Christian and attach it to a manuscript that in fact was anonymous, presumably in order to give it more credibility, who would I choose? And that's not uh, guesswork because we have later apocryphal documents of various kinds assigned to uh, Peter, assigned to Thomas, um, assigned to Mary. Is that Mary Magdalene or Mary the mother of Jesus? Uh, probably Magdalene, but there is some dispute. Um, people like Nicodemus, other disciples like uh, Bartholomew. Um, well, who are Mark and Luke? Mm -hmm. They're not members of the 12 apostles. Luke appears by name at the end of a couple of Paul's letters in his greetings, in one case called his beloved doctor, and he is believed by a lot of church history, to be the we, W-E, who appears sporadically in the book of Acts as one of the people traveling with Paul. But other than that, he's a very minor character. Um, Mark, whose full name apparently was John Mark, appears uh, also in Acts, most famously as the one who deserted the Apostle Paul in the middle of one of his missionary journeys although there's evidence that they were later reconciled. Uh, only Matthew and John are written by apostles. Matthew, well, he was the converted tax collector, which was a very nefarious uh, occupation in occupied Israel. And so next only to Judas Iscariot might be the least likely apostle to be selected, uh, if I could pick any of them. So now it's really only John out of the uh, four who is the type of person you would expect uh, the early church to, to choose unless there was a good reason for saying this is the person who actually wrote it. Mm -hmm. So is there uh, any other uh, evidence that you, you might want to cover besides uh, the, uh, the manuscript titles that uh, attest to the traditional authorship? It depends on how much you want to make of 
other details. Yeah. Um, if you go outside of the Bible, if you go to what uh, the church already in the second century and certainly in the third and fourth century uh, uniformly claimed, mm-hmm. again, there, there are no competing traditions. Yeah. Um, when we come to a book like Hebrews, where there really is no ascription of authorship in any title or in the verses of the book itself, you discover that the early church had several people that competed, if you want to use that word, for uh, the claim to be the author of the book. Um, there's no competition. There's, yeah. there's no rivalry. There's nobody else. Now, some people will say, well, the later church was mistaken in some things, so we can't read too much into that, and that's true, but on the other hand, uh, if they were wrong uniformly, um, we're not really in a position to uh, come up with anything better. Right. That This is what I find so striking about this conversation, is that not only do the manuscripts themselves uniformly... Um, you know, say that they're from Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, but so does the, so do the the, the church fathers and the early Christians also. With without contradiction is what surprises me so much. Like whenever you look um, at uh, the manuscripts, the later manuscripts, and also the uh, church fathers on the Book of Hebrews and something like that, where you, you the earliest manuscript you have truly is anonymous, and so. Yeah, it's just it just amazes me that there's no contradiction. And what further amazes me is that someone still wants to make an argument that they were originally anonymous, even after all of that. Um, like you said, it just uh, it sounds like a, an argument from silence if you if you wanted to to make that argument. But I, as far as I know, uh, or at least I'm told that that's actually the uh, most prevalent view. Is that the most? Uh, is that the consensus? Is that the most prevalent view that they were originally anonymous in New Testament scholarship? That is, it's it's difficult um, to decide what a consensus is on many disputed topics because there will be a lot of uh, more liberal scholars who, uh, when they speak about a consensus or they speak about, about a majority viewpoint, they mean uh, within their circles. Yeah. And the rise of more conservative or more evangelical scholarship worldwide just in the past generation has been so remarkable that I suspect if you simply counted up numbers of people who are fully credentialed biblical scholars, uh, PhDs in New Testament studies from accredited universities worldwide um, that you might find today, um, including those who are not avowed conservatives or evangelicals, but who do opt for uh, traditional authorship, that probably there is no consensus anymore at all hmm. in terms of some of these liberal positions. Uh, but unfortunately, many people simply discount uh, 
all conservative scholars uh, and and write them off. And uh, when they say there's a consensus, they mean uh, among the people uh, that we studied with and that we respect the most highly. Hmm. Okay, so uh, back along the lines of this uh, general reliability of the Gospels, uh, I'd also like to discuss the dating. What is kind of the, again, the consensus of the dating of the Gospels, and how do you go about dating the Gospels, and, and do you come out uh, around whatever the consensus is, or a little earlier, or a little later? Uh, yeah, so go ahead. Well, actually, I prefer to date my wife rather than the Gospels. But, <laughs> no. oh, well, I don't Sorry, buy. <laughs> very, very bad joke. For the viewing audience, I have a dumb sense of humor, and I always tell bad puns. Um, talk to any of my former students. But... Uh, yeah, there's, there are debates here. Um, to be very brief, uh, many conservatives would put Mark, Matthew, and Luke all somewhere in the 60s of the first century with uh, Jesus' crucifixion, uh, probably in 30 AD. Some people would say 33. So 30 or fewer years after uh, the death of Christ. Um, in more liberal circles, uh, Mark sometimes is put in the 60s, sometimes in the 70s. Matthew and Luke often into the 80s. A few people will push them even further out. Um, conservatives and liberals alike, more often than not, will put John in the 90s. And without going into all of the reasons for this, what I think is interesting, yes, that's an interesting debate. And yes, um, the earlier you can date something, in general, all of the things being equal, the greater its credibility. Um, but all of the things aren't always equal. And on any of those dates, we're talking about the first century. Mm-hmm. We're talking about even even with some who would go into the very early second century for one of the Gospels, we're talking about less than 100 years from the time of Jesus' life, which for some of us today sounds like an astonishingly long period of time, but in the ancient world is a very short period of time compared to the histories and biographies we have of most other major characters in the Roman and Greek worlds and most other histories that are generally deemed to be trustworthy of large periods of time. Mm-hmm. So this is we've been discussing kind of the general reliability of the the, the documents, uh, the Gospels. Now, uh, there's also this study of uh, more specific claims within the Gospels, and so it's one thing to say that a document as a whole is uh, you know generally reliable because of its date it was written close to the events uh, that it was that it describes and it was written by somebody who either was an eyewitness or could have had access to eyewitnesses so let's grant right. let's let's grant that uh, the gospels were written you know uh, you know 60s 70s 80s 90s and sure. they were, and they were actually written by the traditional authorship Matthew Mark Luke and John which means uh, at least in the case of uh, Matthew and John they would have been eyewitnesses and Mark and Luke would have been had access to eyewitnesses 
So let's grant all of that, at least for the sake of argument. Um, what can, how, how then would we go about assessing the individual claims within the Gospels? And uh, yeah, just what are, for right now, what are kind of some methods that, that you apply to the text that, to try to pull out, well, this is more uh, likely true because of this or however you go about it? There are uh, a lot of standard criteria that scholars have used, and some of these criteria have uh, been abused, and therefore they've come under fire in recent times. So we have to realize their strengths and weaknesses, um, not push them beyond what they can demonstrate. But one of the very standard uh, criteria is if something appears in more than one independent ancient source, uh, sometimes known as the criterion of multiple attestation. That's not quite the same as saying, uh, oh, it's in all four Gospels, because uh, we have reason to believe that Matthew and Luke both knew the Gospel of Mark, and in fact uh, followed Mark uh, both topically and in his actual wording in various places but um, that Mark and John uh, were more independent than not, that there probably was um, a collection of Jesus' sayings that was preserved uh, from pretty early days on that Matthew and Luke also utilized uh, that Mark didn't. Um, and sometimes that's labeled Q from the German word for source uh, or quella. It appears that um, uh, Luke, particularly since he was not an apostle, uh, probably had access uh, to other written and certainly other oral sources. Um, and then there are bits and pieces, uh, despite uh, claims on the internet to the contrary, that uh, other Greek and Roman historians uh, and Jewish writers from the earliest centuries made um, other uh, pseudo-Christian documents that at least in part may have been uh, somewhat independent of uh, the canonical Gospels. Mm -hmm. And so the more that I can find something appearing across a, a broad representative cross-section of these kinds of documents, the more it appears in different forms, what is sometimes called a criterion of multiple forms. So yes, there are these amazing claims of Jesus working miracles, but then there are references in later New Testament works. Well, actually, chronologically, most of the letters of Paul preceded the Gospels, so they're later in the flow of the narrative, Mm -hmm. But they're earlier historically, which means they're an independent witness. And uh, Paul will refer back uh, to things from Jesus' life. Uh, other uh, letter writers do that also. Just with a, a throwaway phrase or an incidental comment, uh, not actually narrating one of the stories, but just assuming, oh, these are widely known. Um, and so uh, that's probably enough to turn the conversation back over to you. Yeah, sure. So um, <laughs> multi uh, multiple 
uh, independent attestation it seems to be what, uh, the criteria you're highlighting there that uh, historians right. more broadly use to study uh, historiographical information to see what most likely happened. Um, it's it obviously can't be perfect. Right. Uh, just uh, there could be a, a false claim that is multiply attested. Uh, sure. Correct. Yeah. Um, so this is something that skeptics will say to me as well. Like, well, you know, so what? It's multiply attested. Not everything that's multiply attested is true. How do you respond to to something like that? Um, by acknowledging that that's correct, but yeah. by simply saying that's one of the standard tools of the trade. Um, if you go to uh, a famous ancient person like uh, Alexander the Great, who died in 323 BC, uh, his most detailed and generally held to be most reliable biographers uh, come from the late first and early second centuries AD. Uh, two men by the name of Plutarch and Arian, and uh, there are some details that they disagree on. Mm -hmm. So uh, what do we read in our uh, world civilization textbooks uh, that we get in uh, introduction to uh, history in college? Uh, usually it is what is multiply attested, uh, what both of those writers agree on, and there's no evidence that they knew of or consulted each other, and also uh, a few smaller earlier sources. Um, obviously, that's just a starting point. Mm -hmm. And the other thing to be said is, while independent sources can, on occasion, make the same false claims, although actually that doesn't happen all that much, um, just because something is only singly attested shouldn't make it inherently suspect because the vast majority of testimony from the ancient world has long since been lost. When we read what still does exist, we read about references to um, encyclopedic-sized sources that simply have not survived uh, the centuries. And so um, there probably were countless things that were once multiply attested that no longer are. Mm -hmm. I, you, you bring up a good point. Let, let, let's go ahead and go there. Uh, what do you do in the case of what are some other tools to use that right. would that would raise the probability that the claim was actually true? Um, when when there well, are not when there are not multiple attestations to it. I mean, just as a real life example, I had a skeptic ask me, and sure. I don't actually know if this is multiply attested or not. It just took me by surprise. I was. Um, I just said that I didn't know, and I'd have right. to get back back to you on it. But the question was, you know, prove to me his histor prove first of all, but prove to me historically that uh, the transfiguration really happened. And I was like, <laughs> well, I don't even know how I did that. First of all, I think the only recording of it is in the Synoptics, and it's you know, I think there's they're probably borrowing from Mark. But uh, but anyway, what do you do whenever the in the case of where there's sure. uh, not multiple attestation? Well, interestingly, that one, uh, there actually might be, because uh, in Second Peter, uh, right. and there's a huge question about the authorship of Second Peter, but uh, the person seems to be putting himself forward as Peter, because in the first chapter, he refers uh, to not having followed cleverly invented myths, 
when he referred to the revelation uh, of Jesus on the mountain that uh, uh, he personally was a part of. Um, but the, the important question to ask um, in a situation like that is, what is a person's starting point? Mm -hmm. If I went to the accounts of most of the events of the lives of one of the individual um, Roman emperors, the very most famous events would be multiply attested, although sometimes only by two writers. Right. But much of what um, we take, because we have no reason not to, to be accurate history, um, is consistent with what is multiply attested okay. and um, comes from the earlier questions that we talked about, the same writers who, when they can be tested, show themselves to be reliable. We do not, uh, in any area of the study of ancient history, go uh, story by story, passage by passage, and say, prove to me this happened, prove to me that happened, prove to me this happened. If we did that, um, our encyclopedias would be shrunk to the size of a small paperback. Yeah. Um, we, would, we would confess utter agnosticism uh, about things that we actually have unbroken traditions and accounts of over the centuries. That's not how historians work. That's how skeptics work, but in fact, they only do it when it comes to Christian history. Yeah, it's pretty arbitrary, yeah. Um, they, don't, they don't do it. Uh, I, I've never met anyone who would apply it consistently across the board to all of history, or you wouldn't know anything. The approach is, if I find a writer who seems to be uh, following a literary genre, a literary form and style, uh, and there are tips like the first four verses of the Gospel of Luke, that very much fits uh, a historical, biographical prologue. Um, if uh, the time and place and circumstances and sources uh, are good, if uh, what can be tested, uh, names, places, people, matches what we know uh, from archaeology, it's interesting, the whole idea of a sort of a historical novel where you take pains to have all the, the details right, but then I tell a story about Joe and Linda who are made-up people. Um, that didn't exist in the ancient world. Oh, you can read the Homeric epics and find a, a smattering of references to real people and places, but not the majority. Mm -hmm. The majority is, is mythological gods, goddesses, and completely made up lands that no one believes existed. We have found, in fact, we have known about, in most instances, all the places in the Gospels, in the Book of Acts, a huge majority of the places in Old Testament narratives. 
Um, and the main characters, the public figures, kings, generals, governors, uh, provincial leaders, are all documented in uh, other ancient history, completely independent from the Bible. If the, to just limit ourselves to the gospel writers, if they took all of that material and then largely made up events with people that they put in it, they were about 1,700 years ahead of their time yeah. and uh, something that we just don't know about from the ancient world. That should speak volumes also. Yeah. So in the case of uh, a text that is not multiply attested, might you, would you just fall back on, and um, fall back on may not be the correct terminology, but would you just fall back on the general reliability of the text and the author in that case? Because, I mean, you, quite frankly, you just don't have much other choice. There, there are other criteria. Um, there is the famous dissimilarity criterion that um, has been uh, uh, used, abused, revised, um, dealt with in all kinds of ways, but um, one of the most responsible uses of it is to say, if something is conceivable in a first century, early first century Jewish environment in Israel, so that it's not anachronistic, but nevertheless, um, reflects a real distinctive mm -hmm. that, as far as we know, is just not something that other Jewish people were teaching, mm -hmm. other Greek and Roman people who might have influenced uh, culture in Israel, and is something that doesn't dominate the rest of the New Testament. Uh, doesn't seem to be uh, a major theme for the early church. Uh, then that, all other things being equal, most likely comes from Jesus. Yeah. Uh, a classic example is his key theme about uh, the arrival of the kingdom of God yeah. with his ministry. Um, the idea of God being king over Israel is hardly new, but the phrase, the kingdom or the reign of God, um, is not one that you find in the Old Testament. And that precise language is rare in Second Temple Judaism. And the idea that it has at least partially come and is not just in the future is even more distinctive of Christ. It's all over the Gospels, uh, With 80 the, plus times. Yeah. But go to the rest of the New Testament. Mm -hmm. a handful of places it's there you can find it in Acts and Paul you can find it at the beginning and at the end of Acts but it's not the most common way the early Christians talked about the message of Jesus yeah. it was more likely to find them talking about salvation right. or eternal life yeah. and so uh, even many of the most skeptical scholars will say pretty bedrock core reliable information about Jesus was that he was uh, at the very least an accredited prophet of God announcing the um, breaking into human history of God's reign in a new and significant way. Yeah. yeah. 
Okay. Well, let's move on to uh, final question for the uh, before we get to the bonus segment and for the listeners. If you want to uh, watch a bonus segment, uh, five more minutes with uh, Dr. Craig Blumberg, you can do so by following the uh, link in the description below labeled "Support Help Me Believe" and becoming a patron supporter over on our Patreon page. But uh, Dr. Blumberg, thanks so much uh, for doing all this. One last question. Oh, you're very welcome. Uh, how would you go about making a historical or, or making an argument for the historical credibility of the resurrection? Well, it's funny you should ask, um, since you just uh, advertised your uh, uh, blog a little bit. Um, I published in the spring a book with uh, an atheist professor, uh, Carl Stecker, who uh, I debated on a couple of occasions at uh, Oregon State University uh, during this past decade, and it's called Resurrection, um, Faith or Fact? Question uh, mark. It's published by uh, a major humanist publisher called Pitchstone Press out of Durham, North Carolina, and so uh, uh, readers who are interested, especially those who might not know of that press otherwise, uh, um, We'll leave you can a, see what I do in, in more detail there. But in a nutshell... We'll leave a um, link to the, in the description to the book, by the way. I just want the listeners to know I'll find the link and put it in the description. But go ahead, oh, sorry. Oh, bless you. I'll, uh, I'll give you a cut of my royalties. I appreciate which, that. Uh, so yeah. far, have been much. <laughs> um, but uh, <laughs> there are a number of uh, striking things about the resurrection accounts Um in each of the four, and whatever theory of relationship of the Gospels you support, when it comes to the resurrection accounts, there seems to be enough of each writer going their own way that there is at least more independence, not complete independence here, than elsewhere, and yet all of them have women as the first people to discover the empty tomb. Um, of course, in Mark's shorter ending, there are no resurrection appearances per se. Um, but in the other Gospels, uh, you have women witnessing Jesus resurrected. Um, in a culture that was very... Um, sexist by our standards today. Uh, why would you uniformly start a story that had an uphill battle to fight to begin with to be credible? Um, with witnesses who often, not always, but often were not even allowed to uh, count as witnesses in uh, a court of law. Why did the early church, we read about it already in the book of Acts, um, when there are still significant Jewish Christians as well as Gentiles, uh, very quickly begin to worship on the first day of the week, Sunday, rather than the day specified by one of the ten most inviolate commandments of the Jewish religion, the Sabbath, Saturday, unless something that was more than a, a personal vision or impression uh, 
uh, actually happened on a, a Sunday morning. Um, why are the accounts as restrained as they are? We actually never get in the canonical Gospels um, a description of the resurrection. All we get are accounts of people going to the tomb, finding it empty, finding uh, messengers there who say, he's gone, yeah. don't look here, and then appearances that come later. Mm -hmm. um, how did he get out? Yeah. Was it superhuman effort where he really pushed that stone and rolled it aside? Um, or did he just uh, use the ancient equivalent of the transporter room and beam himself out? <laughs> um, or, or some other kind of miracle? Um, when we come to the later apocryphal accounts, right. like second century Gospel of Peter, we do have a story of the stone rolling away by itself and out appear three people, two whose heads extend to the clouds and one in between them whose head rises above the clouds. Yeah. Uh, spoiler alert, that one's Jesus. Um, and a cross that follows them, um, apparently uh, can walk all by itself. And a voice from the cross saying, have you preached to those who sleep? And uh, the reply comes back, yes. Well, that's what early Christians did when they were making stuff up. Um, well, let's talk about some of the sources. What are some of the earliest sources about the resurrection? And um, and uh, and for the for the empty tomb specifically. Well, in addition to the four gospels, uh, there is the famous uh, passage in First Corinthians fifteen, where Paul refers to what he had transmitted. He says delivered to him uh, language. Uh, he received what was delivered to him that was regularly used for. Uh, faithful communication of oral tradition at the first, um, when he first became a believer, that he made um, primary early uh, account of when he was uh, um, first in Corinth uh, preaching the gospel. And then comes a list of the witnesses of the resurrection but even before uh, he says that, he says that Christ died according to the scriptures and was buried. Well, of course you bury somebody, um, but that seems to be his going out of his way to say this was a fully complete human death uh, that was followed by a fully complete bodily resurrection. And, of course, the rest of the chapter argues for that in, in detail. The important thing is that not only are there the, the 12 apostles, minus Judas Iscariot, who's taken his own life, uh, there is reference to James, the Lord's half-brother, but Paul also says there are more than 500 other witnesses, and many of them are still alive, as if to say, you can consult them if you want to, I'll, I'll tell you where to find them, and uh, they'll corroborate the story, if you ask me. Yeah. Um, and the fact that that seems to suggest 
an unbroken tradition of belief in the resurrection of Jesus as a genuine, miraculous, physical event um, goes a long way to counter. And, and in a letter that is undisputed, that Paul wrote it in the mid-50s, there's almost no debate about the date, um, prior to any one of the Gospels, Paul couldn't say, hey, Dr. Luke, let me see your, your Gospel and uh, copy it. Um, hadn't been written yet. Um, if anything, Luke got some of his information from Paul rather than the other way around. Right. And uh, this goes right back to the beginning. It's what Larry Hurtado has called the revolutionary rather than the evolutionary development of New Testament theology. It's not some pagan myth that was created a century later when nobody remembered the Jewish origins of the gospel. This belief in the resurrection was there from day one. Yeah, and and you were talking about the dissimilarity uh, criterion earlier. I think that a single person resurrecting in the <clears throat> middle of history would be dissimilar to what uh, Jews at this time believed. Is that correct? That's very true. Um, for the most part, Greeks and Romans, uh, there are a few exceptions, but for the most part, they didn't even look forward to a, a bodily resurrection, but at best only the immortality of the soul. Mm -hmm. um, it was within Judaism and pretty much all branches except the one small leadership group known as the Sadducees, who did believe in bodily resurrection. And the most important text out of their scriptures comes in Daniel chapter 12 in the opening verses uh, that speaks about the Resurrection and the last day of all people, um, some to everlasting life and some to everlasting punishment. And uh, so even coming to believe that Jesus was the Messiah, the long-awaited deliverer of the Jews, would not have necessarily led majority of Jews to believe uh, that he would be resurrected three days and after his death, uh, he would be resurrected along with all people at Judgment Day at the end of human history. Yeah. Well, again, uh, thanks so much for, for joining me, Dr. Blumberg. This has been a lot of fun. And uh, to, again, to the audience, if you want to get that uh, book on the resurrection, I'll leave a link in the description as well as a link uh, in the description to the historical reliability of the New Testament uh, that uh, Dr. Blumberg has written as well. And again, if you want to watch the bonus segment, Five More Minutes, uh, you can follow the link in the description. Dr. Blumberg, thanks so much for joining me, sir. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me.